1: Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 226. This week, a big thank you goes out to David, Arnav, Hunter, Justin, Grant, and HistoroGamer for their support on Patreon, where they now get access to special Patreon-only episodes, as well as special ad-free versions of all of these episodes. If that sounds interesting, head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out more information. Also, a reminder that episode 231 will be a Q&A episode, and it will be released uh, on or about December 4th. And I think I'll probably stop accepting questions a week before that, so like roughly November 27th, so you have about a month to get those questions in. I already have a pretty good list, but there's always more questions to ask. Last episode, we discussed the events in Ireland between the signing of the treaty with the British and the outbreak of the Civil War. Today we will be all about the Civil War, which would begin in June 1922 and then continue for almost a year. Even though it continued for such a long time, the outcome of the fighting was not really in doubt after the first few months. Fighting in one form or another would continue in many areas of Ireland, but it would rapidly devolve into a guerrilla campaign of small groups of Republican IRA soldiers making sporadic attacks on provisional government units. We will end today with the death of Michael Collins, who had been a critical leader of the Irish forces before and during the Anglo-Irish War, and then an important political figure during the treaty debates. The fighting would begin with the Four Courts Building in Dublin. In early April, units of anti-treaty IRA men had captured the four courts under the leadership of Rory O'Connor. The reason that the four courts had been seized was as a kind of a callback to the 1916 Easter Rising when the four courts had been captured and held by the Irish rebels. These actions by the anti-treaty forces caused tensions to rise, but no immediate actions were taken by the forces of the provisional government at that point. If you remember, last episode, this was during a period where both sides were still trying to work together, and were generally resistant to begin open hostilities. Then in early June, Sir Henry Wilson was assassinated in London. This caused the British to, con- to consider making their own attack on the four courts, utilizing British troops that had remained in Dublin as part of the treaty agreements. A meeting was held in London on June 24th, with the decision made to go ahead with the attack the very next day. This attack would have been solely motivated by retaliation, but it would not be launched. After returning to Ireland to lead the effort, General McReady had changed his mind about the attack after sort of reevaluating the situation in Dublin, and instead he decided to postpone the attack, and later he would cancel it outright, due to concerns that any action by British forces would only serve to unify Irish opinion against peace with the British. This concern was probably correct, or close to correct. During this podcast, we have discussed many events where the actions of what was seen as an outside force served to unify diverse national groups that otherwise would not have worked together. It's likely that this might have happened in Ireland if the British had actually taken action against the four courts. Instead, the most important outcome of these British plans was that the provisional government was put under greater pressure to handle the four courts situation themselves. The British would make it clear that if the provisional government did not take care of the four courts, then they would bring in more troops into the country and they would take control of the situation, whatever that meant. This threat was a big factor in bringing Collins into support for the attack. The other leaders had been more willing to launch the operation, with Griffith, O'Higgins, and other political leaders being in support of an attack even before the British became involved. They had based their opinions on the fact that it was really a question of who controlled the country, either the elected political officials or the anti-treaty military forces. Collins had always been the hesitant one, with his past leadership of the IRA and the fact that he knew and had fought with some of the men in the four courts contributing to his hesitancy. But the British threats caused him to see the four courts attack as a necessity. It would not be until June 26th that the, that the official decision would be made to move forward with the assault. At 3.30 a.m. on the 28th, an ultimatum was given to the occupiers of the four courts. The ultimatum was simple. They had to evacuate the building immediately, uh, but when this was rejected, the attack began at 4.15 a.m. The attack would begin with artillery fire aimed at the four courts. The defenders had been surprised by the ultimatum and by the attack that followed. There was a general belief among the men that no attack would be made until it was actually happening, and then there was no time to respond. The one overriding concern of the defenders was that they not be seen as the aggressors, and this ruled out any offensive action. This meant that after the ultimatum, they were adamant that the defending troops not fire the first shot, and it also meant that the anti-treaty officers refused to move out and occupy any of the surrounding buildings, an action that was critical if they wanted to have any possibility of successfully defending their position. Firing on the four cords would continue for three days, and during this time parts of the building would be destroyed by artillery fire. The Irish leaders were dependent on the British for their supplies of artillery and rifle ammunition, and this presented something of a challenge due to McReady's concerns about handing over so many supplies to Irish forces, who he was quite skeptical of. Pressure from London to provide as much assistance to the provisional government as possible overrode this skepticism, though. Churchill, who was Minister of State for War at this point in time, would send a message that said, quote, Tell Collins to ask for any assistance he requires, and report to me any difficulty that has been raised by the military. End quote. Churchill would even advocate for British troops to be sent to Dublin to assist. Collins and the other Irish leaders would always resist the suggestion from London to use British troops, but it would still be made from time to time. The material support was what the Irish really wanted, and with that support, it was only a matter of time and a question of whether or not the provisional government's troops would stay the course. In many ways, the situation for the garrison of the Four Courts mirrored the events of the Rising from 1916. It was organized poorly, and the plans in place for defending against an assault were almost non-existent. Ernie O'Malley, one of the leaders of the Defenders of the Four Courts, would later write that, quote, it seemed a haphazard pattern of war. A garrison without proper food, surrounded on all sides, bad communication between their inside post, faulty defenses, girls bringing ammunition from attackers, relieving forces on our side concentrated on the wrong side of the widest street in the capital. quote. After three days, and in the midst of an assault by government forces, the defenders were forced to give up the fight. Explosives were left in the public record office, which would be destroyed after the fighting ended, resulting in the loss of some records dating back to the 12th century. While the attacks on the four courts were ongoing, around Dublin, small groups of anti-treaty forces occupied other buildings as well. However, this was not really done in a logical or planned way. It was just, just kind of random. While these buildings were occupied, the overriding feeling among the anti-treaty forces was one of confusion, and in some cases, frustration. Here are a few quotes from men who participated in these actions. Uh, ben Doyle would say, quote, The whole thing was taken in a half-hearted, slipshod manner. Sean Smith would say, We could see staters going around in lorries, but we had no actual orders to fire on them. And Maurice Brennan, would say, eventually I felt that the disunity was against any chance we had, we had no heart in it. After the four courts surrendered, the other fighting in Dublin quickly died down, and by July 5th, Dublin would be fully under the control of the provisional government. During these sporadic actions, 65 people would be killed and 28 wounded, with total damage to the city being between 3 and 4 million pounds. While the Civil War had now begun, the actions in Dublin would have two important impacts on the conflict as a whole. First of all, several prominent anti-treaty leaders had been captured at the Four Courts, and they would be unable to play an active role in the fighting, and with the failure of the Four Courts' defense, Dublin was mostly lost to the anti-treaty forces. During the rest of the Civil War, it would not see any real organized anti-treaty actions, and instead, the focus of these actions would shift to other areas in Ireland.
2: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: With the Civil War started in earnest, it's time to make a slight change to how I'm referring to the forces involved. Up until this point, I've used pro-treaty and anti-treaty terms pretty frequently, and then the provisional government to refer to the pro-treaty Irish civilian government. From here on out, I will continue to use provisional government for the same purpose, but I'll start using the word Republican to represent the anti-treaty forces both political and military throughout the country. When the fighting began in Dublin, it looked like the Republican side had many advantages. Outside of Dublin, and especially in the south and western territories, the country was almost entirely under public republican control. In many of these areas, there was almost no provisional government presence at all. The provisional army was also inexperienced, and in many cases was made up of men who had been previously part of the IRA, which made them hesitant to join in the initial fighting. This made the provisional troops almost completely unable to actively bring the fight to the rural regions where their republican support was the strongest. There were, however, several overriding problems that the Republican leaders would be working against. The first was that the Provisional Army was able to draw on British arms and ammunition, which would eventually completely overwhelm that which was available to the Republicans. The second, and probably more important, was that the fighting was incredibly unpopular, and it would just become more unpopular as it continued. This unpopularity may have been okay in some circumstances, but it was coupled with strong support for the government, or provisional forces, and not the republicans. In the time, this lack of public support would become a greater and greater problem for the republican army. In some cases, Republican forces would end up surrendering, or just withdrawing from the war, due not to the pressure from the provisional army, but instead from the local population, and this neutralized Republican units when every man was critical to the Republican war effort. These challenges, which to be clear, the Republican leaders had no control over, were compounded by mistakes made by the Republicans early in the conflict. From a strategy perspective, after the defeat in Dublin, the Republican forces generally went on the defensive, They would respond to provisional attacks and actions, but they rarely launched any large attacks on their own initiative. This would prove to be a critical mistake for an army that, relative to the provisional army, would only be at a greater disadvantage as time went on. This inaction would also cause many Republican supporters, men who had joined the fighting willingly in the early stages, to lose faith in Republican leadership. With resolve being chipped away at in this method, Republican units around the country who were defending villages and buildings in important areas would often choose to retreat in the face of determined provisional attacks instead of fighting it out. These surrenders then caused morale to be further reduced, causing a feedback loop that was catastrophic for Republican prospects. The lack of proactiveness among the Republicans could be traced back to its lack of leadership and unity, Many Republican leaders had been captured and imprisoned early in the fighting, or before the fighting even began. The Republican leadership was further hampered by the fact that several prominent anti-treaty IRA officers had chosen to abstain from the fighting. It was also a challenge to achieve the unity required to meet provisional attacks, a constant problem that had been plaguing the IRA since its creation. This lack of unity of purpose and action allowed the provisional forces to defeat IRA units in isolation. The only good news for the Republican forces was that the Provisional Army was having many problems of its own. It had a lot of men, about 15,000 full-time troops and 35,000 available in the Volunteer Reserve. However, most of these had little military knowledge or experience. Also, unlike the Republican troops, the Provisional troops were not very ideologically motivated, and were instead just in the army for the pay. Early in the fighting, these two facts were problematic for the provisional forces, when faced with the far more experienced and determined Republican fighters. After the fighting ended in Dublin, it would take time before it would expand to the rest of the country. When news of its surrender reached the Western Republican leaders, the response would be divided. Some, especially those in the most Republican of areas, wanted to immediately go on the attack. They advocated for immediate attacks on provisional forces in the Western provinces, especially in the South, where the Republican forces were at their strongest. Others advocated for a more defensive stance, instead waiting for the provisional forces to make their move. The provisional leaders were hesitant to move beyond Dublin, but eventually they began to plan their next steps, and that step would revolve around Limerick City. Limerick City occupied an important space within the geography of the Civil War. If it could be controlled by the Republicans, it would solidify their control of the southern counties and separate some areas of strong provisional control. The Provisional Government wanted to control Limerick for the opposite reason. They wanted to strengthen their power in Southwest Ireland, and to begin to chip away at Republican strength in those areas. When the fighting erupted in Dublin, the majority of Limerick City was controlled by Republican forces. They had about 700 men in the city, with a very solid solid advantage over the 400 Provisional Army troops that were also in the area. This advantage for the Republican forces did not immediately cause them to launch an attack. Instead, their leaders were hesitant to go on the offensive, and instead they entered into negotiations to try and craft a truce with their provisional officers. They would craft this agreement, quote, in the interest of a united Ireland and to save our country from utter destruction. End quote. And part of the agreement was that the buildings around the city were portioned out to both sides to control, with the Republican forces given most of the military barracks in the recognition of their stronger position. This truce, crafted by the leaders on both sides, would be heavily criticized by the Republican rank-and-file. Sean McSweeney would say, quote, Time was needed by the enemy. T- to gain time, they gave pledges which they broke when it suited their purpose. In this case, the criticisms of the agreement would prove to be warranted, because on July 11th, reinforcements for the provisional units would begin to arrive in the city. It would also be on that very same day, during which 150 men would arrive from Dublin to reinforce the provisional forces, that the provisional leaders would officially notify the Republican officers that the truce was cancelled. While the truce was cancelled, it would take some time before the provisional attack would be launched, and it would not be until the 19th that it would begin. This attack would look a lot like the actions around the four courts, the provisional leaders picked one of the strongest Republican positions, in this case the strand barracks, aimed some artillery at it, and started firing. The Republican forces were unable to launch an attack to silence the guns, and were initially unwilling to give up their positions. Over 30 shells would be fired into the barracks before the Republican forces retreated from the building. Now with the Strand barracks surrendered, the other Republican units in the city, instead of continuing the fighting, instead abandoned their buildings, after destroying many of them. Then the Republican forces would give up the city entirely and retreat south. The fighting in Limerick was light on casualties, only 28 casualties on the provisional side, and roughly the same on the Republican, and due to the speed of the fighting, the loss of Limerick surprised many Republican leaders outside the city. They had anticipated a lengthy defense, or even a successful one. It would just be the first of many unexpected losses over the coming months. By the middle of August, almost every sizable population center that had been controlled by the Republicans when the fighting started had been captured by provisional forces. By that point, both Waterford and Cork would join Limerick as cities from which the Republican forces had been ejected, with at least some fighting, but never enough fighting if you asked some Republican leaders. These initial actions by the Provisional Army had been successful at capturing the cities, and the loss of these areas had been problematic for Republican morale, but it did allow the Republican forces to maintain most of their strength. Instead of being drawn into costly fighting in those cities, which would have rapidly destroyed the fighting ability of their forces, by the end of August, the Provisional Army was now faced with the prospect of having to carry their campaign into the rural areas where the Republican forces were at their strongest. One Provisional leader would say, quote, "...our forces have captured towns, but they've not captured irregulars and arms on anything like a large scale," end quote. While they were able to enter the next stage of the fighting without having suffered large losses, the Republican forces were forced to alter how they would continue the fighting. This would be the point where the fighting would change, from what was a pretty traditional set of conflicts around cities and geographical features, to be more of a guerrilla warfare style campaign, between small groups of Republican fighters and the Provisional Army. This was an intentional change by Republican leaders, with people like Liam Deasy and Patrick Maloney sending guidance to Republican officers that they should organize their men into small columns that would carry on fighting. These columns should be, up, be made up of at most 35 men, and they should be hand-picked. Deasy would say, quote, Only the very best and most experienced men, whose record in the late war with the English was such that absolute reliance can be placed upon them, should be included. There were some critics of this move to small-column actions, but in its early weeks and months it appeared to be somewhat successful. It allowed the Republican cause to continue, and for the men to continue fighting in some way. Even with this success, they could not overcome some of the problems that these new policies would have to contend with, which were problems from which other Republican leaders, especially the political leaders, would draw their criticisms of this new strategy. Basically, while the fighting would continue, the chance of any kind of actual victory was gone. The political leaders on the Republican side believed that it was important for the Republican army to continue large military actions just from a publicity perspective. If they wanted to shift public opinion in their favor, there had to be victories. And without those, any shift in the mindset of the people would be impossible. From other military leaders, their primary concern, which would prove to be correct, was that if the small-column policy was pursued, it would result in a slow bleed of Republican army strength, and over time, this is exactly what would happen. The small units would become smaller, due to more men giving up the fight than from actual casualties caused by the enemy. As the number of men grew smaller, the overall nature of the units became more radical, but it also reduced their ability to launch any kind of military action. In essence, the shift in September to small-column guerrilla tactics was a strategy designed by and for the most radical Republicans. It had little chance of achieving an actual victory for the Republican cause. It only served to drag out the fighting beyond the point where it had any chance to drastically alter the future course of Irish politics. One action by the Republican forces that would alter the course of Irish politics would occur on August 22nd, 1922, when Michael Collins would be killed by Republican troops in Southern Ireland. On the morning of the 22nd, Collins would travel in a small convoy of vehicles north out of Cork City. While on the road, they stopped to ask for directions, and it just so happened that the person that they asked was a member of the Cork Brigade of the Republican IRA. After he informed his superiors of the encounter— An ambush was laid along the route, just in case the convoy returned along the same route later in the day. Throughout the day, the men waited, but by 8pm in the evening, many decided to give it up and retire for the night, under the assumption that the convoy probably headed back to Cork and by some other route. Five men were left behind to clear up a barricade that they'd laid across the road, and while completing this task, they heard the convoy returning and set up a small ambush. They fired on the convoy when it came within range, and Collins, against the wishes of the other provisional officers, ordered the convoy to stop and return fire. For the next half hour or so, both sides continued to fire at each other, at which point Collins was hit in the neck, quickly dying as the only casualty in the fighting. When the news of Collins' death reached both sides of the Civil War, some Republican leaders suggested that he'd been killed by, prov- by a provisional bullet, and they publicly denied that any ambush had occurred at all. There isn't really any evidence of this, but it was a way for the Republican leaders to try and sow doubt as to the cause of Collins' death. This was important because Collins was a very popular figure in Ireland. And his removal caused a problem for the provisional government, and it almost certainly altered the course of the Civil War. Decisions made by the provisional government, especially around the execution of some Republican leaders, almost certainly would have been resisted by Collins, and those executions would signal the beginning of the end of the Civil War, an end that we will discuss next episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode for the fourth and final part of our episodes on the Irish Civil War.